Now, brothers, as we come to this text here, especially in Christmas season, uh, it is an interesting text to preach from, from the pulpit in the Christmas season because we read and there are a lot, lots of exhortations, lots of do's and don'ts. And you know, during Christmas season, there are many ads, many references to Santa. And most non-Christian parents use this opportunity to actually encourage, it, encourage their children to be well-behaved. And their, their argument is basically, be a good kid, you will earn a gift. That's basically how they go about it. And they, they have this promise, if, you, if you're a good kid, you get to earn this gift. The best you behave, the better you behave, the better gift you get. But if you are not a kid, then you don't get any gift at all under the Christmas tree. It's simple. Good kids earn gifts. Naughty kids get nothing. And while there might be some wisdom in encouraging good behavior, in rewarding good behavior in Christian parenting, essentially, this logic is a logic of, well, salvation by works that has been taught early on. And this is exactly the opposite of the logic of the gospel that we will find on verses 11 through 14 here on how the grace of God works. The logic of the gospel is precisely the opposite. The naughty ones are the ones that earn, or they don't earn at all. Actually, they get as a gift, as a gift of grace, that which they don't deserve. Guilty sinners are the ones that are the target of the saving grace of God in Christ here in verses 11 through 14. And today we learn in our text, basically, verses 11 through 14, that God's grace is giving us something. God's grace is doing something to us. We'll see this reality in, in, in four points that really reflect some of the gifts of God's grace. In the first point we will see that grace saves and trains. Sorry, two points. The first one, God's grace saves and trains. Two things, but one point. And then the second point, that grace gives hope or begets hope in that it achieves Christ's purpose. We'll see first verses 11 and 12 and then verses 13 and 14. And as we come to our text here, verses 11 through 14, our focus, we need to understand the context. So, if you don't know much about Titus, maybe it's a letter that people don't read much because it gets caught between Hebrews and the two great letters of Timothy, and sometimes it's hard to find. Maybe you had difficulty finding it tonight. But this is a very precious letter, and it's a, a letter that is precious because it teaches us what is the doctrine, or better saying, the truth that is according to godliness, the doctrine that matches the living of doctrine. And here, specifically in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is encouraging Titus not simply to be a good boy and earn a gift, but to be a faithful minister of the, world, of, of the word empowered by God's grace. That's why we find here this word for in verse 11. You know, most of Paul's letters, they, they have like a section, half of the letter, the pastors at, at least, and the other ones directed to the church, half of the letter is instruction. The other half is application. And then you have usually a therefore connecting those two. Titus is a little different. There's a lot of specific instructions 
And really the first big section of doctrine we have in the letter is here. So there's a bunch of instructions, a bunch, bunch of do's and don'ts, verses 1 through 10. But then verse 11, here's the foundation, for. In other words, Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, be a faithful minister, teach all kinds of people, do this, do that, do this, do that. For the grace of God has appeared. That's the foundation. And as we come to our text here, it's important to understand the doctrinal foundation for good works. Otherwise, we will, we will eventually catch ourselves with Santa's doctrine, which is actually Satan's doctrine of living, trying to earn our salvation by good works. Here, the foundation for the faithful ministry of Titus is the grace of God. And in our first point in which we see that grace saves and trains, the first thing that we see here is that the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. That's the main clause. This is one thing that has happened, and there are participles. In, in grammar, uh, we, we can organize those actions so that they are subordinate. Let me make this more clear. The grace of God, of God has appeared, and it has appeared doing something. It has appeared saving, first of all, and then teaching, and we'll see more on the other things. But the grace of God appeared to us. And we need to understand, what is this appearance? It is, it is interesting to notice, brothers and sisters, this word for appearing is very unique, very unique in the New Testament. Now, the way in which the verb is uh, conjugated here and with, with a prefix, it's, we, we could transliterate as epiphaneo. Now, why I'm getting into those technical things? Because this is a somewhat rare occurrence. It only happens in Luke chapter 1, which is speaking about a particular appearance coming. And it appears again in Acts in another context. The epiphany... We don't have a, a verb to epiphany in English, but we have the noun from the same root. But the epiphany of grace that is coming in here, it's a particular manifestation of the grace of God. This word is often used to express the idea of a sudden coming of light in the midst of darkness. This appearance really is the incarnation of Christ. It's the coming of Christ to save sinners. This is defined for us even in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. We read that when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Grace has been manifested. It came into history. It has appeared unto mankind and now may I ask you the basic Sunday school question. What is grace? What is the definition of grace? What does it mean that grace has been manifested to us? The Sunday school answer would be that grace is an unmerited gift. And if you do a word study on this word here for grace, it's, it's interesting. You will see that Paul, specifically here in Titus, is picking up on some of the Old Testament connotations of grace, this word in the translation of the Old Testament, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is reflected with two specific words. 
in Hebrew. One of them is the word Hana, the other one Chesed. But what matters is that one of the words really reflects the idea of something, not, not only something that is a gift, but something that flows out of a disposition. That's the manifestation of grace to us here in Christ, precisely what has been described in, in, cha in chapter 3, verse 4 as well, that God, in his kind disposition, in the kindness of God, and in his love for sinners, he has appeared with grace. You see, God is not just bringing a gift like a parent that just has the kid bugging him before Christmas, give me this gift, give me this toy, and then the parent just grabs the gift and take it. <laughs> That's not God with us. God is coming out of his love to fallen mankind. And out of the disposition of grace comes a gift of grace. The other word that is reflected in the Old Testament being used related to this word, which is reflected in the context, Paul is picking up in this use as well in the context, is the word chesed that maybe is more known, the word used for loving kindness, faithful loving kindness of God that presupposes a covenantal relationship. And it looks like Paul is picking up in that Old Testament use because of the, the way in which he describes this concept, this theology in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He saves us in Christ, in Christ, in a relationship with him. And we are made heirs, heirs of the eternal life. And, and just that is enough for us to, to give praise to God. But there's more. There's more. The grace of God came out not only out of his kind disposition and love towards sinners, but it came bringing salvation to all men. All men. After a long list of kinds of people in verses 1 through 10, Paul wants to stress grace came bringing salvation to all men. Grace is available for each and every kind of sinner that Titus has to deal with, including when Titus has to deal with himself as a sinner. Young people, old people, aged, troublesome people, the, the older men and older women here that might have some irreverent behavior, grace is there for them. It has been manifested for that kind of people too. For slaves, for owners of slaves, for all kinds of people, grace has come. And we, we learn a few lessons here, even from, from this first verse, that the most important one, the most obvious one, but the one that we need to stress the most because of, of the natural tendency of our hearts to deviate from God, is that salvation is by grace alone. So simple, brothers and sisters. So simple, but so necessary. Grace came as a divine manifestation. It was not me that made grace be manifest. It was God in his kindness and love that took the initiative to manifest grace, to make Christ come in history to save sinners. It's God's initiative to show grace to sinners. Exodus 33 and 34 show this reality to us. God comes and he tells Moses that he will have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy. And he does indeed have abundant mercy just poured over us. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of our works. It's not something that we can earn being good kids. 
adoption comes first, and then comes us being transformed into the likeness of the Son of God, Christ Jesus. First, he makes himself the father of, of those that are fatherless. And then he transforms us in good kids. It's an undeserved gift indeed that the Son of God had to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that now we have peace with God. But also we learn here that on the appearance of grace in history here, and by the way, his appearance, it's really a reference primarily to the incarnation in this verse here, that Christ came in history, really tearing down the view of history, coming to us. This manifestation is something that God meant to be made clear. That's what manifestation means. The gospel is not a hidden message. It's God making manifest his love for sinners in the person of the Son. It's not for an elite particular group, isolated, that know better, that know what the Bible is all about. It's for, for sinners. It's for people that don't have much understanding about God, about the world, about themselves, but they need to learn from God. They need to have the message of the gospel made manifest to them. This gospel message is made manifest to us particularly in Christ's incarnation. And of course, from the incarnation, it follows his whole life, death, resurrection, all of the verifiable facts that the apostles could testify to. All of those facts that were written the words of Scripture, and we know that we have a gospel according to the Scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle John will say that he has touched, he has heard, he has lived with Christ, he has put his head on the bosom of the Lord Jesus. Christ was made manifest in history. So we don't worship uh, an angel, we don't worship uh, just a spirit, we worship the God-man who came to us down to our level. And of course, I have mentioned this, but in terms of application, we learn that grace is available to all men. Not only all kinds of people in terms of old and young and slaves and owners, but to all kinds of sinners in their particular conditions. He came to save sinners. That's what Christ came to do. That's what he says in the Gospel of Matthew. I came to save that which was lost. I came for the sick. I came for the needy. I came for the unrighteous. Every kind of sinner is invited into this manifestation of grace to come to God. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter how bad was your sin, how bad is your sin. If you come to Him, His grace will shed a light upon you. It will expose you at first. After exposing you, it will transform you. It will make you more and more into his likeness. But grace does something else as well. Grace appeared saving, but also instructing or teaching. And this is the word that gives us the root for the, again, we don't have a verb, but we have a noun, the noun pedagogue. It presupposes a kind of training in here, that is really the training of those teachers, those pedagogues and masters of old, that would not simply be a professor or a teacher that would come lecture for a few hours and leave, but that would walk alongside and train on the way. 
That's the kind of training that grace has available. In Christ's coming, the grace doesn't leave us alone. The grace of God in Christ doesn't leave us alone. It's not like God came to us and said, like, you are saved, check, now go live your life. No, he doesn't leave us alone. He is with us on the way. The grace of God in Christ instructs us. Particularly, notice, verse 12 says that it's, it came instructing, the end of the verse, to li- or the middle of the verse, to live. It came instructing to live. And there's a particularly a negative and a positive way in which we are taught to live. In theology, we can call this mortification and, and vivification. It is being made holy by denying some things and by pursuing other things. What are those things? First of all, we are called to deny or to repudiate, to throw away, to do away with ungodliness and worldly desires. Interesting words. If you look at the usage of these words, the word for ungodliness is almost always used in the New Testament for heretics, for false teachers, for those bringing dissension to the church. It is really focusing on the overflow, on the overflow of ungodliness. It's more focused on the practice, on bringing discord, on bringing trouble, bringing false teaching. But this other word here has, uh, uh, this other expression, the desires of the world, or worldly desires. It's focusing more on the internal aspect. And Titus is being reminded here by Paul that really, you can't have one without the other. If you have a corrupt heart, that will show out in your actions. If you have wicked deeds, that's because of a corrupt heart. They go together. They go together. One of my professors would always say in seminar that you can't have, that, that, that right doctrine produces right living. That what, that's what he would say. The same is true for the opposite. Wrong doctrine or wrong thinking produces wrong living. They are together. And here we are called by the grace of God to put to death, to put to death the desires and the deeds that are against God, the sinful desires and deeds. We must kill sin, brothers. We really must kill sin. If you, if you look into the way in which this is described here, the, the desire, usually in the fall, if you remember the fall narrative in Genesis 3, the desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. One begets the other. If we don't kill it at the root, it will spring forth, it will bud, it will come out. We are called to put sin to death on the basis of the appearance of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God has appeared in Christ. Kill sin. That's what Paul is saying. And that, that leads us to the natural question that we have in our lives when we are fighting for sanctification. How do I kill sin? How do I put sin to death? There's much that could be said about that. Many books have been written on this. But what Titus here is being reminded is that the appearance of grace in Christ is the main instrument for him to put sin to death. In other words, how can I battle worldly lusts, worldly thoughts in my mind? How can I 
kill that worldly habit, that practice? Well, you must look unto Christ. Christ has been manifested. He has appeared for you precisely for that. Other parts of Scripture will basically expand this teaching, but it is in seed here. When you read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, that we have a great high priest that understands us because he has been tempted in all things, but yet without sin. He has conquered sin. Then we are encouraged and we know Christ was a real man with bone, with flesh. He knows what it is to be with the battle, in battle with sin. Here we are encouraged to look at the salvation that came with him. Grace came bringing salvation to all men. And in that manifestation of grace, it came teaching us to deny our flesh. But there's a, a positive aspect too, which is described here as a life of, let me put in my words, sobriety, righteousness, and godliness. Our translations here have to live sensibly. It's really sobriety, having good sense, as it makes sense too. And, and Calvin is, is, is interesting here. He really says that, uh, he, he summarizes, he says that this is a comprehensive summary of the Christian life in which you, you are to have sobriety in relation to yourself, righteousness in relation to other men, and godliness in relation to God. We learn how to live in the sight of God in all spheres of life, even as we deal with ourselves, but also with others and with God himself. The grace of God is the guiding principle for us to deal with ourselves, others, and with God himself. There are many applications that flow from this, brothers and sisters, many. You know, when, when people are resisting, when people are resisting, for example, to come to the, the table of the Lord, I have heard many stories of elderly folks in their 80, 90 years old, and they say, I can't come to the supper because I don't know if I am an elect. That's a problem in dealing with self and a problem in dealing with God. If the grace of God has been manifested, it has appeared to all men to save men, and if the promises of, of, gospel, of the gospel are true, I can't deal with myself in that way. This is false humility, false humbleness. When you put yourself down, I'm such a terrible sinner, I can't do this. That's not a good way, to a sober way. When you deal with yourself in indulgence, indulging yourself in sin, indulging yourself in worldly pleasures that sometimes are permissible, but you overdo it. You are not being sensible. You are not being sober. When you deal with others in a way that is not righteous, in a way that you don't seek for justice, you are not imitating the Lord Jesus Christ, living by the golden rule due to others, as you would like it done to yourself. And here again, we are reminded that it is on the manifestation of grace that we have the instruction of grace. And if we want to live godly lives positively, as sober, righteous, and godly men and women, primarily, we must look at Christ again. It's because grace has appeared that I have this instruction. We look at Christ as an example, yes, Christ is the perfect model. He lived a perfect life. He was sober, enduring provocation, 
enduring temptation, even during torture, spitting on the face in his, in his crucifixion, he was a sober man. He knew how to control his emotions in a way that was godly. He let them out to do what was right, to seek justice. But he would control them when they were not helpful. He was a righteous man treating all alike, in the sense that he preached the gospel to every man. He preached to Pharisees, to tax collectors. He preached without partiality to prostitutes, to politics, to Jews, even to a Samaritan woman. But he was, first of all, a godly man. For him to live Korandeo was the main thing. To fulfill the will of the Father was his heart desire. We see that even in his prayer in the Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup away from me. But if that's not your will, let me drink it. But Christ, if you look at Christ just as an example, you will be crushed. He is more than an example. He is not less, but he is much more than an example. Christ is not only our highest pattern of holiness. Christ is the one who is united with us. He is the one in whom we find in the gospel, in the manifestation of grace, that in his death and resurrection we have union with him, and he is the one that enables us to live by grace. We are enabled to live by grace, brothers and sisters, by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, by looking at our union with him, because we can't do what he has done to the degree that he has done. But because he has done it, he has opened the ways for us, for us to imitate him. I love that quote from Luther. He uses it with sonship, not with union with Christ, but it's essentially the same. He says, it is not imitation that makes children or filiation. Or filio, yeah, filiation. But it is filiation that makes imitation. Let me put it in my words it is not imitating that will make you a child of God, but being made a child of God, that's what makes you attempt to be like your father. That's where it starts. Or using more specifically the, the, the words of our, our text here, it is in the manifestation of grace in Christ that you find the power to live holy lives. In union with him because he has appeared bringing salvation to all men. But there's more here. There's more here because grace does not only come saving and teaching. But grace comes to us also encouraging us to look at what's next. And what's next? Verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the appearing, again the epiphany, the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Now, briefly here, there are some interesting words. Again, manifestation is the same word, the same unique epiphaneo word that only happens here and in Luke and in, once in, in Acts 2. It's a glorious manifestation, which is described particularly as a blessed hope. Blessed hope. Now, we think about hope and we think about, well, I expect this to happen but that, that's not the, the meaning here in the scriptures. Hope is a certainty. It's not 
a doubtful expectancy. Oh, it would be nice if that would happen. I, I hope that happens. No, it's a certainty. And even the word for waiting here, that, well, not for waiting. Here is a good translation. It says looking for the blessed hope. But many translations have this as waiting. Really, there's an active sense here that's looking for. That's a, a better translation. We are looking for, for that blessed hope to come. Christ in his return is the desired object. It is very clearly defined here in the text. That's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And we are encouraged, brothers, to live by hope because grace has appeared and because grace will appear again. And because grace will appear again in Christ, we live with hope, contemplating, expecting Christ. We contemplate him as the one who has saved us already. He is the God and Savior of our souls. Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. He has done a few things. He has saved already us. He has gave himself for us to redeem us. He is the Savior, but he will also come again. Wow. What a blessed hope we have in his person and in his promise of return. He is the God-man in his person. Uh, I like that quote from Anselm. Anselm says this, that the debt, our debt of sin, was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. That the same person must be both man and God, thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could that's from Cur Deus Homo, his famous work in which he explains why do we need a God-man, and that's his answer in a nutshell. Why do we need a God-man? Why do we need this Christ? Because he pays being God and man. He pays for the sins of mankind. He is able to represent us on both fronts. But not only his person, the promise of his return, the promise of his return, he will come back again. And we look forward for that blessed hope. We expect. Believers, they, they, they eager in their heart, they, they eagerly expect. They have this yearning in their heart. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. And you see, we are all hope-driven creatures. Be you a believer or not, be you a church person or not, we are all hope-driven creatures. We are all seeking happiness. That's, that's a fact. Uh, actually, Pascal has a, a, a nice quote that he says that all men seek the same end. All of us are hope-driven creature, creatures seeking happiness. And he says that the same desire that makes some go to war and some to avoid is the same but with different interactions in each man. And this Christian thinker uh, concludes this quote saying, even those that hang themselves are motivated by hope. Let that idea sink in. Even those that hang themselves. We are creatures driven by hope. But Titus specifically here, as he needs hope and encouragement for his ministry work, he is appealing to the greatest hope of all, which is the hope of seeing and enjoying and being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that can satisfy our souls, that can quench our thirst, that can satiate our hunger. That's the only hope, brothers and sisters. 
And as we look at this reality here, it's easy for me to say this from the pulpit, but the reality is that very often we as believers are not as motivated by this reality as we should be. I understand non-believers don't care, when they don't care about it. I understand it. They have to be born again. But what about us? Why do we have ourselves so distracted with so many things and we don't think about Christ's return and we don't really yearn for that reality? I think I, I have part of the answer here. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis that he he makes the connection between why men in general, not only believers, but believers and unbelievers, why men in general don't, don't really care for heavens. I'll read two quotes, one from C.S. Lewis and one from John Piper, which are connected. It's an interpretation of the quote. C.S. Lewis says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Christ finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go making puddles, making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And John Piper comments on this, and he says... The problem is not the desire of happiness in itself, but that we settle for mud pies when we are promised paradise. The great problem with mankind is that we don't desire happiness with nearly enough knowledge and passion. In other words, applying this truth to us, why is it, at least in my own heart experience, that I don't find heaven so attractive to me? Why is it maybe that you... Don't think in heaven as much as you could or ought. Because we settle for so little. We settle for scrolling our phones on Instagram. We settle for getting ourselves distracted with the things of this world. Looking for a, a better salary. Looking into moving into a better city. Of we settle for trying to raise our kids to go to the best colleges. And we don't really think about what is important and what is important. Paul is telling Titus here, what is important, Titus, for you to faithfully minister in the midst of confusion and in the midst of the Christians there that are very challenging. It is important that you look ahead, that you look unto the promise of the return of Christ, of paradise that is promised to you. That is the blessed hope that you must have in your sight. Eyes on heaven, hands in the earth, working. That changes our lives. That changes our lives. A true sight of the glory of the Christ who has saved us. And of the glory of the Christ who will return to completely save us. That's how we live. So we are called here, brothers and sisters, to really meditate on the reality of heavens and to let that sink into our minds, to think about what it will be like in the new heavens and new earth, in which there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more battle with sin, 
No more loss of the loved ones. No more unrighteousness, no more injustice, no more wickedness around us, but only the presence of the beloved Christ all throughout eternity. And then we'll be able to rejoice infinitely with him. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be with him? That's the best place to be. But also here, we are told in our text that Christ gave himself for us, in verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. That's the purpose of grace. That's the purpose of grace. Or better saying, the purpose of Christ in manifesting his grace. Making for himself his own people, a people of his own, who is zealous of good works. Look at the description that you find here. It's a people that is redeemed, a people that is purified, a people that is adopted, of his own, his own people adopt, and a people that is characterized by good works. We could theologically use other words for that. Redeemed, people have been justified, sins forgiven. Purified, people are seen, that are seen from the perspective of God as perfectly Positionally sanctified, perfectly pure, adopted, and effectively sanctified. So not only seen from God's perspective as pure, but indeed doing good works. Effectively sanctified. And from this description here, we have uh, some applications for us here, briefly. First of all, that in Christ, making a people of his own, we are to rejoice in that reality. That reality of really adoption, of being made part of his people. Adoption or at least inclusion in the kingdom. Now, a good while ago I was reading an article that would list the different benefits of being an American citizen. I am a, a Brazilian citizen, if you haven't picked up by my accent yet. But maybe Americans don't know about what a privilege it is to have an American passport, for example. It's so hard to travel with a Brazilian passport to many countries. With an American passport, you can go to most places. And there are several benefits of having an American citizenship. Let me read some of them for you here. In this article that I was reading, I, I jotted down here some of the benefits that were listed. They say that privileges of being an American citizen include bringing family members to the United States, obtaining citizenship for children that are born even abroad, traveling with an American passport, becoming eligible for federal jobs, even becoming an elected official, like a politician, and showing your patriotism. And we think about living in this world and the privilege that you have living here and there. But our text is speaking about another kind of citizenship, about being part of another kingdom. And for our illustration here, I want to contrast with the benefits, just some of the benefits that we have from being made Christ's own possession. You can bring your family members to your heavenly country through the proclamation of the gospel. Your children, they are named under the seal and sign of the covenant and included in the visible church. You have a heavenly passport 
for a much better country, brothers and sisters, that guarantees your interest in that country. You have a, a federal job. Every believer has a federal representative job of being ambassador of Christ here in this world, preaching the gospel to this fallen world. And if you're called to the ministry, you even have a specific, uh, specific job here, an elected official which will have the privilege of shepherding God's people. And you have the greatest privilege of all, of showing all of your appreciation for that country, praising its king. It is much better to be a citizen of the heavenly country. Regardless of the benefits and of the privilege that we may have living in any country or region here, regardless of all the comfortable lives that we can live in this world, you know what I want to do? I want to be with him, with Christ, where he is. That's the great, greatest privilege of all. I want to be there. I want to be there with him. We should care more about that than about our cars and houses. That's where we want to be. But finally, brothers and sisters, as we look at this description of the people of God here, I must challenge you as well. I can't end this message without a challenge. This description of a redeemed people, a purified people, a people of his own possession, a people zealous of good works, is this something that describes you? You who are sitting in a church pew today, tonight. Specifically the last one, which is something that we can see, being zealous of good works. Does that describe you? Would someone else that is not part of this nation identify you as part of the heavenly nation? Can people identify that you are different, that you are a believer? Is this something that marks you? If not, two things are possible. You are either an unbeliever who might be on the church, but you don't really know God, so you have no hope of Christ's second return for you. You have no encouragement in Christ's first coming for you. Or it could be that you are a believer, but you are weak in faith, and you have no fruits of repentance to show, and you must repent. Either way, the solution is the same. It is to look to this Christ who has manifested himself in grace to us. It is to go to him. He is the one that by his grace saves, trains, gives us hope, and makes us his own people. Come to him. Leave away the logic of Santa of trying to warn your spot by being a good kid. Leave that. Come and submit yourself to the logic of grace in which you are accepted as a sinner, in which you don't earn anything, but you come to him without anything to give, and he gives you everything, everything that he is for you. That's the greatest gift we can have in Christmas. That's the greatest gift we can have in any season of life. The manifestation of grace in Christ for us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who had come to us in your death and resurrection 
and who will come to us again. We believe in the truths of the gospel and the promises of the gospel that will be accomplished in your return. Help us, Lord, here. Help us to live by grace, to live looking unto you and not to ourselves, to live by the logic of the gospel and not by the wicked logic of Satan that tells us that we must do things to earn our salvation. But let us look unto you, O Lord Jesus Christ. And by looking at such grace manifested to us, that this would encourage us to live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present world, being abundant in good works. This is what I pray for me and my brothers and sisters here. In the name of the beloved Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, brothers, we respond in faith and we rise together to sing to the Lord from Psalter Hymnal 387. 387. Blue Psalter.
Amen. Hear the words of benediction from the scripture in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.